How about that? Huh? So nice of the Star Wars folks to make us our own sermon series bumper. Uh, they made us our own trailer just, just for this sermon series. So nice. Uh, hey, if you're, if you're a Star Wars fan, or even if you've not, uh, if you've been on social media recently, recently, you've seen this trailer for the new Star Wars Episode 7, right? 7, uh, that does not come out until December, right? Christmas, and there's already a buzz about it. We're already uh, excited about it, um, but the, it's called The Force Awakens. It's interesting that back in the late 70s, if you can believe it or not, uh, just to give you some context, I was not around then, um, that's when the first Star Wars movie came out, and it was called A New Hope. I'm just saying, all right? It's called A, a New Hope. This one is called The Force Awakens, that there's been this uh, awakening for good in the galaxy against evil, against the dark side. And if you kind of peel back the layers and look below the surface, it's hard not to miss these biblical themes all over these movies, really all over most movies that we love. But you see these themes of light versus darkness and love versus hate and good versus evil. And, and, and now an awakening has coming, a revolution by the good in the world and the galaxy has started and it is being fueled by the force, by a force. A revolution has started against the darkness in the universe and it is fueled by a power outside of themselves. Does that ring a bell about any other story, right? You cannot tell me that these stories just pop, these plots just pop out of nowhere. It should sound pretty familiar because that's right where we are in our story today. We're in the middle of this new sermon series called Revolution or Join the Revolution. Everybody say revolution. revolution. And that's what we've been talking about. We're looking at the gospel of Mark. It's hard to read these stories in Mark and not see the same thing. That Jesus has initiated this revolution and it's called the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is on the move. The rule and reign of God is now upon us. And it's changing everything, which is really the definition of a revolution, right? You, you read about revolutions throughout history. There was the French Re Re Revolution. There was the American Revolution. These things, they change the course of history. They change everything. Yet so often we misunderstand what Jesus came to do, what he was all about. We think Jesus starting a revolution. I thought Jesus was just a nice guy. And we, we, we misunderstand what the revolution means for our own lives. We misunderstand the invitation that Jesus is offering us. The invitation of this revolution to you this morning, primarily the invitation of Jesus is for you is not just to attend a church service. I know. Scandalous, right? You're here. You told us to come. Yes, you should. Right? You get to worship. But this is not all there is. The primary invitation of Jesus is not for you to be a good, moral person. Yes, that's a part of it, but I don't know about you, but that doesn't get my blood moving in the morning that I leap out of bed saying, I'm going to go be moral today. Maybe you do. But there's got to be something more to that. There's got to be something that brings life to our bones and, and to our lives and joy and real peace and real freedom. The primary invitation of Jesus is to an all-out changed life. It couldn't have been just to make us nice people. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read about the revolution and you'll see this. I love what Christian author, Philip Yancey is his name, and he writes about Jesus' revolution. He says this, I'll put it up on the screen. 
How would telling people to be nice to one another get a man crucified? What government would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? need to put that image in your head, but just think about that for a second. It's a good question, right? I don't see Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo or your favorite cartoon character, somebody that just says, be happy, love everybody, be nice. They're not going to try to overthrow a government, and they're not going to challenge the authority of the day. The more you read about Jesus, the more you read the Gospels, you discover he was not that all interested in making everyone happy. Jesus wasn't really interested in making friends with everyone so that they would just agree with him on everything. He wasn't all that interested in being popular. In fact, often Jesus' words and actions make people feel quite uncomfortable. And I hate to break it to you this morning, but Jesus' primary purpose for your life is not to make you comfortable. I mean, I hope your seat is this morning and you got your coffee and you're feeling good and you're feeling welcomed. But in terms of your faith, in terms of being challenged, in terms of this is your life, and this is the life that Jesus wants to offer, and when those things come colliding, what happens? What happens when God's kingdom comes crashing into your kingdom, and those are differing viewpoints sometimes? There is tension, possibly, in your life, because in any kingdom, there can't be two kings, And so what happens when Jesus' life comes colliding into ours? There are things that Jesus said as a revolutionary leader that are just plain edgy and challenging to our worldview. That's why this sermon series, or this sermon today, is called Say What? Everybody say, Say What? what? Now turn to your neighbor and just really look at him, like really ham it up. Say what? Just tell your neighbor. (laughs) Say what? Right? That was kind of fun, right? You never thought you'd do that in church, right? You hear people say that all the time, like somebody says something shocking, and sometimes, depending on where you live in the United States, the response will be, say what? Right? Because they're like, what? This doesn't doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense. Jesus said some things that make us go, say what? This doesn't fit within my understanding of Jesus, and rather, these controversial statements of Jesus, I'm sure after Laura read the scripture reading this morning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and that there's sins you can't be forgiven of, I'm sure all of you just felt warm and fuzzy. (laughs) There's these passages in scripture that we go, what? Why did you have to say that, Jesus? Why couldn't we just talk about happy things? Because it's important. And as we learn from Star Wars, there is darkness in this world. There is evil, there is heaven, and there is hell, and there are very real things. There is pain, and there is suffering, but there's also light, and there's goodness in this world to be found. And there is a battle going on, and Jesus' kingdom smacks right in the middle of the two and puts a stake in the ground and says, the force has been awakened. Not just the force for robots and Luke Skywalker, but for you. It's available for you to join the revolution. So today we're going to take a look at three, among many, three revolutionary things, three revolutionary moves of Jesus just in these few verses in this passage. There is a lot here, and so we're going to unpack it and dig in together. So you ready to dive in? I don't believe you. Are you ready to dive in? Yeah. <laughs> Say what? All right, Mark 3. Here we go. Mark 3, 
22. If you've got your Bibles, open them up, or if it's on your phone, that's cool too. We encourage you to bring your Bible with you every single week. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. You know Mark, one of his favorite words is immediately. Everybody say immediately. Immediately. So Jesus is moving, Mark's moving things along here, and Jesus is already busy doing lots of ministry. Now taken out of context, the story that you heard read for us this morning in Mark 3 might seem very confusing. We're going to start in verse 22. So let's back up a bit. Jesus has started his revolution, and as a part of Jesus' revolution, he does this thing where he casts out demons from people. This isn't just a biblical thing. This happens today. Evil spirits are real. The presence of Satan in this world is real. But it's not more powerful than Jesus' power. And so whenever we encounter that in our lives, we have the powers, Jesus demonstrates for us here, to cast those that evil out, to cast those demons out. It's not something that people see every day. And so Jesus is casting out these demons. Not everybody can do that. People weren't used to that, especially the religious establishment. And so we pick up the story in verse 22. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, say about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. You unpack that a little bit. It's the prince of darkness. So anyone there would understand they are calling Jesus Satan. They are saying that Jesus is possessed by Satan. These holy, holy spirit things that Jesus is doing, they're saying, that must be evil. That must be Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And after Jesus, in your passage there, clearly explains, it's kind of silly to think that Satan would want to kick out Satan. And then Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln and said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, actually, it's the other way around. I had a college professor tell me that Abraham Lincoln came up with that quote. I'm like, I think I've heard that summer before, right? (laughs) A house divided against itself cannot stand, whether it's the Civil War or whether it's with inside the human heart. And so Jesus is trying to explain that to the Pharisees. And then Jesus says one of these statements that has sent shivers down the spine of Christians, of believers, for years. Verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. I read that this week, and I thought, you know, I think that's a good place to stop. I think I'll send you home on that, (laughs) on that bright and cheery note, right? Taken by itself, this is a very scary and alarming phrase. I wish we could just avoid it and pretend that Jesus never said that. You mean there there is a sin that we cannot be forgiven for? We're Lutherans, for pity's sakes. You can be forgiven for anything. There's grace for everybody. So this doesn't fit the mold here. Many Christians have asked in in all honesty, oh my word, I wonder if I've done that. And we get all worked up and we get all fearful about how do I know, Pastor John, if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, it's important to know the context here. This is not just a statement that Jesus pulled out of nowhere. It fits in with this story. For the past chapter and a half, Jesus has been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been changing lives. And these are truly Holy Spirit things. And yet the only response of some of these religious leaders, these Pharisees, is to call what Jesus is doing pure evil. Which Jesus calls this 
blasphemy. Biblical scholars say the best way of describing blasphemy is an ongoing, intentional rejection of God's grace. Not just a one-time, oh, I messed up, I said a naughty word on the interstate, I wonder if I can be forgiven. All the way to, no, Pastor John, you have no idea what I've done in my past. So I'm kind of shaking in my boots right now because Jesus just said there might be a sin that I can't be forgiven. What, what's up with that? Say what? Biblical scholars say an intentional rejection of God's grace. One definition calls it, think about this, the crime of assuming to oneself the rights and qualities of God. Which is essentially what the Pharisees have been doing for a long time here, again and again and again. They don't have the right to call something of God pure evil which is a long way from people that I've heard get all worked up about this passage who come to me and say, but John, I I have doubts about God. Or, John, I've done a terrible thing. I don't know if God could ever forgive me. Or, I keep messing up again and again. I wonder if God will ever forgive me. Or even, I've gotten angry at God. Or even, I don't want anything to do with Jesus or his church right now. And some of you, you've lived there for a long time, and now you're finally getting back into it, and you're like, man, God must be so angry with me. I hear those things all the time, and those are the usual concerns that people have. Like, is that the unpardonable sin? And yet, you got to know this. In every single one of those Hearts, no matter what they've done, (laughs) there's this underlining humility that if you dig deep into their heart, you'll find they have not given up hope. I don't, it doesn't matter how angry or frustrated or bitter you get with God, He can handle it. (laughs) If there is a genuine, peace or some part of your soul that says, I don't know how it's possible. I don't know why, God, you let things happen. I'm so mad at you. I'm so frustrated. I'm so disenfranchised with my life. You'll never understand the things that I've done in my past, and yet there is a sliver, a glimpse of hope. That doesn't exist with this unpardonable sin. Let me just put it this way. If you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. That's about as clear as I can make it. Because if you are worried about pleasing God, (laughs) that is evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Right? The Spirit inside of you communicating with the Spirit of God. So if that just sets your heart and mind at ease, everybody take a deep breath and let it out. Ah, Right? If there is any concern in you at all, there is a desire in you to please God. It's unforgivable, not because Jesus doesn't long to forgive. It's unforgivable because they'll never ask. There's no ounce of these religious leaders that are, Jesus confronts about this, that Jesus can see deep into, the, deep into your heart this morning, deep into every human heart, and he knows they're never coming back. They've rejected God, and there is no chance. 
So just to lighten the mood a little bit, there's good news. You can take a deep breath. This is not the hellfire and brimstone sermon. That's next week, so you should come back. (laughs) You don't, here's the good news. You don't have to live your life wandering and doubting. It's passages like this that some of us get so hung up on, and we spend all of our life worrying rather than trusting. And, get, and, and doubting and wandering and some of I, I don't really know if I can know truth and so I'm just going to wander around. It reminds me of this, this friend that I had in college, this classmate. I had several classes with him and we, we gave him the nickname Don't Know Dan. Don't Know Dan. One of these guys that no matter what the topic was, we're sitting in any college class and everybody struggles with stuff in college and you're trying to figure out who you are and explore everything. But any small group discussion we had in class or even with the professor, any time, he would ask a question and we'd all be talking about something and kind of come to agreement and then don't know Dan would always say, well, I don't know. And there was always this sliver of doubt with anything, right? Did we really land on the moon? I don't know, right? Is Elvis dead? I don't know, right? And whether it was those goofy things or even deeper things about faith, I don't know. And here's the thing. All of us kind of act like don't know Dan sometimes. Some of you have been there most of your life. And we just kind of wander around. And there's never, we can't land on any truth because everything's relative. Well, I don't know. And we go through life like that. A a new movie comes out or a new Christian book comes out or an article or, or one of those documentaries comes out or a Facebook post comes out, because every post on Facebook is, is biblically accurate. Um, and it comes out and it makes us think, or, or a certain leader or a certain denomination says, you got to make sure you've done all these things so that you can know that your faith is real, so that you can truly be saved, whatever it is or not. And I'm not saying don't look at stuff that's out there. I'm not saying don't look at the evidence. Don't check your brain at the door. What I am saying is that I think some people really like to wander around so they never have to stop and stare the truth in the face. Because it's a lot easier to stay in your little world and just say, well, I don't know. We can't really know anything for sure. Or can we? Instead of creating fear, let this story be a great reminder There is a God who loves you. There is a God who loves you who says there is one thing that you can be absolutely sure of. Look back at the story. Look at verse 28. Jesus says in verse 28, before he goes into the whole blasphemy thing, okay, he's giving you some truth here. He says, truly I tell you, in other translations, verily, verily, or truly, truly. The best way, the most accurate way that we can uh, transcribe that from the original Arabic that Jesus is talking, when he says verily, verily, or truly, truly, it is basically Jesus saying, you need to listen to this. This is not a suggestion. This is not, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is not a suggestion. This is a statement of truth. And when Jesus says verily, verily, he says you need to listen to this because you can build your life on this statement. People can be forgiven all, all of their sins and every slander that they utter. In other words, Jesus says, you have no 
idea how big my grace is for you today. And when it comes to your standing before God, if you're worried about, oh, what's going to happen in the end? Where is my story headed? What's going to happen when I die? My, my standing before God, Jesus couldn't make it more clear. For God so loved the world that he gave you his one and only son. That he gave you his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not die, but have what? Everlasting life. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You are his, and you can take it to the bank. You can know that you know that you know. That's something to build your life on. There is a God that loves you, that loves everybody and desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So Jesus says, don't get so sidetracked with this utterance of this unpardonable sin that you run off wandering and go join Don't Know Dan over there. That you miss the point that the Christian life is about running as far as you can in the other direction until Jesus, and into Jesus' unfathomable grace. Some of you are all over here, stewed up in the corner, so stressed out. When Jesus says, go run into my grace. If you've ever had any of those doubts or concerns I mentioned before, or if, even if you're feeling lost or disconnected from God today, this text is a great reminder. You were not created to live in fear. What's the point of a man predicting his own death and resurrection and then actually following through with it? Taking your sin and your guilt and your shame and your fear to the grave, defeating sin, death, and the power of hell to come back, rise again on the third day, to dwell and live within you so that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in you so that you could wander around for the next 40 or 50 years or how many years you have left saying, I don't know. It doesn't really add up, does it? Not only were you not created to live in fear, but we were not created to go around pointing the finger of judgment and saying, you're in and you're out. Well, I'm pretty sure they've committed some really bad sins, and I don't know if Jesus could ever forgive them. Not your role. Not our role. Our love is to share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ with a world that is desperately in need. If you are wanting to use scare tactics or fear-based evangelism, that's fine, but Jesus never did it. And so we might need to change our course a little bit. Scripture says it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. If you have friends or family or coworkers or people that you have been praying for, that you would love to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ and get connected to him, do you know what's going to change them? Number one, not you. <laughs> Only God can change hearts. But you know what you can do most importantly? Love them. Love them like they have never been loved before. That's how they'll know. That's how they'll know. I've never been loved that way before, but see, this is where the Pharisees miss it. They get all wrapped up in who's in and who's out. They get it all wrong, and these stories 
you look around with Jesus, it's the poor, it's the sick, it's the lame, it's the outcast, it's the lost, it's the sinners. People like you and me that Jesus is saying, basically society says they're out. Jesus is saying, actually, they're in. And you know what? In all these stories, you know who's out? It's the people that think they're in. It's the religious people that think they've got it all figured out and have nothing to learn. And Jesus says, actually, it's the other way around. Chapter before this, Jesus says, I actually didn't come to hang out with people that are healthy. I came to hang out with people that are sick and are willing to admit that they need grace. That's the heart of a repentant sinner. And that's revolutionary move number one. If you're keeping score at home, Jesus redefines who's in and out. Jesus is redefining who's in and out. Now, Jesus says the kingdom of God is open to everyone. And hear me say this straight. Whether you're rich or poor or young or old or Republican or Democrat or city, live in the city or the suburb or you're Lutheran or Catholic or anything in between or nothing at all, Jesus says, if this is my inner circle, you're in. And it has nothing to do with how good you are or how much you've prayed recently or how much Bible you've read recently or how much church you've attended recently or how good of a person you think you've been. You're in because I love you. And I'm extending this offer of life to you this morning. It's those that don't think they need that. They're actually on the outside looking in. So instead of living in fear, instead of pointing fingers of judgment, Receive his grace. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't afraid to call sin, sin. Over and over and over again in Scripture, Jesus confronts people. He's clearly not worried about confronting them, people that are outside of his boundaries, and the same is true of us. Jesus accepts you just as you are this morning, but he refuses to leave you that way. Why? Because he's God. That's who he is. He is your creator, and he knows the very best for you. And so he's not afraid to challenge us on some things. What the Pharisees that day and what we often forget is that Jesus isn't just a warm, fuzzy friend that comes alongside of us and says, come over and play in my clubhouse and we'll be buddies. He's God. He's God, and that's what the Pharisees miss in this story. Go back to the story. Look at verse 22 again. Verse 22, and the teacher of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So here in Mark 3, Jesus is being called Satan because he's driving out demons. A chapter ago, what we looked at last week in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is being called evil because he's forgiving sins. And here's the problem. Why? Because only God can do those things. Which means this is a challenge to the authority structure of the day. Second revolutionary move by Jesus. In the revolution, he claims to be God. And a person that does that is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. As our friend C.S. Lewis once wrote. It can't be anything else. He's either a liar, a complete maniac, and a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so the Pharisees, in order to compensate from this, because we can't just accept the fact that this might actually be the Messiah, they come up with this conspiracy inside themselves of all the ways that they can conjure up that this is why this is happening. Jesus can't be 
God. But I wonder if we do the same. Not to the point of blasphemy, not to the point of calling Jesus evil. I don't think any of us have done that. But just like the Pharisees, we love to put Jesus in a box. Oh, actually, real boxes, believe it or not. You never know what's going to pop out from behind the altar. We've got some boxes as well. Did you bring your box with you this morning? I think you did. You just maybe can't see it, but let me show you a few that I think oftentimes we like to put Jesus in a box as well. We have all these ideas. We have our God boxes. This is who I want Jesus to be, and this is what I'm comfortable with. So maybe for you, the first box, that's a pretty big one. I think this affects a lot of us. Hey, it's Jesus, the religious guy. Yeah, you know, Jesus, you know, he's, he's the guy that we sing to and, and about and pray to on Sundays. You know, on, on Sundays when we come to the church building and we all act religious, but we really know that Jesus, the religious guy, is just for religious times and religious places, and there's no way that Jesus in a box, religious guy, could have anything to do with the rest of my life. Until Jesus comes along and says, I don't want your religion. I want you. And I want all of you this morning. Okay, well, okay, fine, Jesus, then maybe it's not that. But, but we all have other boxes. Maybe for you, Jesus is, oh, you know, Jesus is more of a consultant for me. All right? It's consultant in a box, Jesus, right? And as long as he stays in this box, I'm fine. You know, if we're honest, most of life, you say, well, I just kind of spend it making my own decisions and by my own criteria. But once in a while, if I'm really in a pinch, if there's something I don't understand or if I really need help, I'll just dial up a phone a friend, Jesus, as my consultant, and I will ask him. Or I'll at least try to get Jesus' blessing on what I want to do anyway. Until Jesus says, I don't want to just be one of many opinions. I want to be the rudder of your entire life. Not just in some areas of your life, but in everywhere, every area. I'm God. I'm the one that created you. I am way more than a consultant. Now, Jesus doesn't fit in that box either. And then, so some of us continue, and, you know, it's not, it's not that. It's maybe your Jesus in a box is more of a good luck charm, Jesus. He fits nicely in that box. There's not much difference between Jesus and Santa. We just ask for what we want, and if we're good, he gives it to us. And if we're bad, we don't get it. Jesus is kind of like this thing that I pull out once in a while, and because he's God, well, then maybe he'll give me what I want. He'll bless me with the answer that I want, and he'll, you know, Jesus, can't you just come along and help me with my agenda? Jesus says, actually, no, I'd rather have you get on board with mine. Because I created you. My agenda, not yours. Because Jesus says, I'll never fit in that box either. And that's what the Pharisees couldn't understand. Their box was, well, he must be evil. And we know where that got him. It has been said that God created man in his image, and we return the favor. We want him to be whatever we want him to be. The question is, who calls the shots for you? Who's really in charge of your life? 
We use this word discipleship around here at Hope Des Moines a lot. That is our number one desire, that you would be disciples, that you would be followers of Jesus. I've heard it said that discipleship, you could say, is this. That this is the point of everything that we do. Everything that we do here at Lutheran Church of Hope, this is the point, that you would be disciples. And what is discipleship? It is increasingly submitting all of life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Increasingly submitting all of life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The question is, is that happening in your life? Or are you just kind of coming here every week and just sort of going through the motions? Is there an area of your life that's still like, no, 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 no. We're not going to go there, Jesus, because that means you'd have to get out of your little box that I've put you in. All of life, surrendering all of life. Or are you kind of defining church and Christianity in some other way that you want it to be? And why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus call us to submit, to surrender everything? Those seems like heavy baggage kind of words. Oh, I don't want to submit to anybody. I don't want to surrender to anything. Because here's the thing. If I'm not in control, that means I don't have control. And for some of you, that is a very scary thought because for some of you, there are still aspects of your life that you are desperately clinging on to to try to control. And Jesus says, you're only going to find real joy, real freedom, real peace, real life when you let go. And some of you are still trying to control certain aspects of your life. Jesus says, I don't give you these rules. I don't give you these boundaries. I don't ask you to submit to me to take away your life. I came to give you life. That's what boundaries are for. We know this all too well these days with our lovely two-year-old, our lovely toddler, Mr. Caleb Lee, for whom we have rules, for which he cares nothing for. So to remind him that we're not just saying, no, Caleb, no, Caleb, stop, Caleb, no, Caleb, stop, Caleb, all day long. We try to balance that out a little bit with, Caleb, here's why we're giving you rules. Here's why we're asking you to submit your will to us as your parents. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. We don't want you to die. We want you to be around for a few years. We want to raise you well. So we have boundaries for you. So from time to time, to just balance out the rulemaking on a regular basis— I will get down on my hands and knees and I will look my son in the eye. And he's probably squirreling around, dorking around or whatever he's doing. And he's squirming and I grab him and I hold him by the shoulders and I say, Caleb, do you know that daddy loves you? And he kind of gets this, <laughs> he's kind of dancing a little bit and he kind of looks around a little bit. And then he looks at me right in the eyes and I'm ready for like this big memory-making, heartwarming moment with my child. And he goes, no! <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, I think I do, but I'm not quite sure if I trust you fully. So he says, no, and I respond every single time I say this. Well, you know what? I'm still loving you. And then he goes, <laughs> and wanders away. I'm still going to love you. 
I'm still going to love you. And I wonder if we respond in the exact same way when the God of the universe grabs us by the shoulders and says, you can't keep living your life the way that you're living it. I want you to submit all of life to me. Get, get me out of the box because I don't fit, first of all. And I love you way too much for that because our Father in heaven comes to us and says, you know what? Hey, buddy. I don't want you gossiping and I don't want you sharing your frustrations with others instead of just telling the person directly. Why? Because I love you. Because that's what makes healthy friendships and family and churches. And God says, I don't need you to gossip even inside of the church. And we say, no. And he says, I'm loving you anyway. I'm still loving you. God, our Father, comes to us and says, you know how I long for you not to lust after others, after your brothers and sisters? Why I'm asking you not to commit adultery with your eyes and your ears and your emotions? I don't care if you're the only one that knows. God says, I know. And I'm asking you not to do those things. Why? Because I love you. Why? Because it's going to make it so difficult for you to ever have intimacy in your life. And God says, do you know that I'm asking you to do that because I love you? And we say, no. God says, you know that I'm asking you to give away your money. I'm asking you to tithe because I love you, because it will actually set you free from stressing and worrying out about money. Do you know that I'm telling you that because I love you? No. But even when we ignore him, even when you want to go off and do your own thing with your life, when we're still trying to control certain aspects of your life, Jesus comes to us and says, I'm still loving you. You're never going to escape that. Even if you think you're so far away and so far disconnected this morning, he says, I'm never going to stop loving you. Which leads us to the end of this story and this final revolutionary move that Jesus makes. Look back at the story one more time. Verse 32, all the way down at the bottom, a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, your first time you read this and you kind of just look at it and you wonder what tone of voice is Jesus using, I'm thinking, Jesus is having a really sarcastic, kind of snarky day, right? It kind of feels like he snaps at him. But if you look a little bit deeper, you'll understand that you got to know how big of a deal a family was in Jesus' day. As it is today, it's very important. But in Jesus' day, a family meant a name, it meant status. It meant value, it meant security, it meant hope. If you're in the right family, you've got it made. If you're not, life's going to be very, very lonely and difficult for you. You have no value and no purpose. It's one thing when a wealthy merchant maybe says, I want you to come be a part of my family as a slave in my big mansion. Can you imagine what it's like when the God of the, like you're sitting there around Jesus, just an ordinary person, and he looks around and goes, you're in my family. You're in my family. You're in my family. You're in. You're not out. You're in. And you always will be. The third revolutionary move that Jesus makes is he redefines family. 
You're in my family now. All the value and purpose and security and significance and hope that you will ever need, you have it now, Jesus says. Yes, your earthly family is very important, but Jesus says you are a part of something that is going to last forever. You belong with me. Which is what he said to a man named James. James was living on the streets of Denver not too long ago, which has one of the highest populations of homelessness and poverty in the country. And as we close with James' story, I think what you're going to see is that he's experienced the revolution. James is a modern-day person that I think Jesus would have loved to hang out with. So as you watch this final story, watch for the revolution taking place in James' life, and maybe it has something to say to you. Let's take a look. If that's not a picture of what we are called to be about as a church, I don't know what is. James has experienced the revolution in his life. How about you? James thought that he was out, but Jesus says, you're in. James is letting God out of his box and he's learning to surrender everything. And finally, James is learning to not just reconcile with his earthly family, but most importantly, to reconcile with his heavenly father. And it kind of occurred to me as James is just about ready to click that button on Facebook that says confirm. You can click that button today. So that you know, that you know, that you know. You are known and you are loved by your heavenly father. No doubt about it. Confirm. Assured. No doubt about it. You belong to him. You can have that relationship with him. And so my question for you today is, what's your next step? Yeah, you've heard all this today. We don't need to live in fear. We need to let Jesus out of his box. Your heavenly father wants to be in a relationship with you. What's your next step? What prayer do you need to pray? What part of your life still needs to be surrendered? Whatever it is, even if you walk away from this place today, Jesus is asking things of you in your life to surrender parts of your life. Even if you look him in the eyes today and say, no, guess what he says back to you? Well, I'm still loving you. Well, I'm still loving you. And I always will. And so let's stand together and sing of this love that has been poured out for us and pour out our love for him, the greatness of God's love. Let's respond to him and thank him that he has a place for us, that we do not have to fear, that we can live life in relationship with him. Let's worship together.